Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, hello. You know, there's this song that we play a lot on this show, and I actually have been playing it on the radio for about 20 years now, I think. It's by our friend Jill Sobule. Uh, it's called Heroes, and, and she begins by saying, why are all our heroes so imperfect? Why do they bring us down? She runs through Faulkner and Dorothy Parker and Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, Pablo Picasso, Orson Welles, Babe Ruth, Lewis Carroll, Tennessee Williams, Raymond Chandler, FDR, <laughs> and interestingly, interestingly, uh, Jill recently, I think on her website, uh, suggested that she should rewrite the song with some new names in it. And Bill Cosby's was one of the ones that she brought up. But it's really a problem. It's a problem all the time. Uh, we know that's a very well-covered thing. But, you know, you can need the words of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. And I, I, I need those words of Ezra Pound's. But he was some monster. What do you do? What are you supposed to do? So this seems especially true maybe in the world of comedy where people, you know, become famous by, in some cases, expressing their demons uh, by turning their demons uh, into, into humor, into laughter. Um, not, not everybody does that. Or some people maybe do it in a way that's so subtle you don't really pick it up. So, yeah, as I said before the news, for me in the 1960s, uh, there was almost nobody more important from 66 on anyway. I was a boy. I was 11. Nobody more important to me than Bill Cosby. Uh, and it was all because of the recordings, the albums. Wonderfulness, and then I worked back. I think there were three albums before that. I listened to all of them over and over again. I didn't even want to see an animation of Fat Albert or any kind of physical rendering of any of this stuff because Cosby had built this perfect world in my mind with his voice. I, I almost can't think of anybody else who... who could do that quite at his level. Um, and then I moved into the 70s, and that was Woody Allen. Uh, and I, you know, all of those early movies in particular, Take the Money and Run, uh, Bananas, especially for me, Love and Death. Um, you know, those were incredibly important movies, and I've kind of stayed all the way through the Woody Allen cinematic universe. Uh, but as we know, both of these men have kind of hit pretty significant rocky shoals with their boats. Uh, with Cosby, I think it's a, a little bit more decisive. Uh, I think with Woody Allen, I'm going to just say this now and maybe get it out of the way. I think reasonable people can look at the Woody Allen uh, story and come to different conclusions. I think if you look at all of it, if you look at everything that's available, it's hard for me. It's easy for me to understand how you might think 90-10, you know, he did it. He, he, well, I'm talking about the Dylan Farrow ac accusations. Or 90-10, he didn't do it. For me, it's about 65-35. He didn't do it. Uh, but 35 is, you know, it's a big number, as Nate Silver would tell you. Uh, I don't understand how you could look at all the evidence, not like the tilt, tilted HBO documentary, but look at all the evidence and, and be 100% one way or the other. Um, all right, I'm done babbling. Let me introduce the panel today. We are going to talk uh, about, uh, we need to talk about Cosby because we need to talk about Cosby. 
We need to talk about we need to talk about Cosby. Uh, we're also going to talk about Rifkin's festival, the latest, <laughs> maybe slightly hard to find Woody Allen movie, uh, and we have a terrific panel to do that with Jacques Lamar is a playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Mercy Quay is founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project and a, cons- a columnist uh, as well. And uh, Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So we're going to begin with uh, we need to talk about Cosby. This is a four-part, really striking and originally thought-out documentary uh, on uh, Showtime uh, by W. Kamau Bell. Uh, we're going to just hear a little bit uh, from the from one of the episodes, you can hear a little bit of uh, of Bell. You're going to hear a little bit of Cosby, uh, and you're going to hear a little bit of comedians talking about Cosby. Bill Cosby himself. If you're a true comedy fan, you can tell that this dude is a master at his craft. Even the best comics you think of right now can't just sit down in a chair and kill. First of all, in stand up. When you see comics sit down, we'd be like, you just, you ain't, who are you? You ain't, you ain't Bill Cosby. So boy, am I glad to be back here. Bill Cosby sat down and had the microphone on his knee. Are you kidding me? He's doing TV shows. He's doing movies. He's doing cartoons. All those other things are fine. But with Bill Cosby himself, he gets back to the roots. His life is observational humor in the most conversational kind of way. Like, you don't even feel like you're really watching stand-up. There are bits in this special that people are still talking about. Chocolate cake, coming up. Four slices. So in our sort of precursor email chains uh, before we do this show, Bill Usman and I, as we often do, <laughs> kind of babbling away about our thoughts. I'm a little less clear exactly on where Jacques and Mercy are. So let's get them going first. So Jacques Lamar, you're, you know, I mean, you, you were, you were, let's say you were of an age to have absorbed pretty much all of Bill Cosby's career uh, had you chosen to do so. So give me your overall reaction to this, this particular four-part look at him. Um, well, you know, I, I wasn't into his albums, but I, uh, I loved watching, um, Fat Albert and, uh, of course, along with everybody in America watched the, the Cosby show. Um, I was a little too young for I Spy, um, and a little too old for picture pages, I think. Um, but. Uh, you know, I mean, he was a hugely formative part of of my youth in that in that regard. Um, also, Electric Company. I forgot he was on Electric Company. Um, and you know, watching the documentary, there's to an extent no surprises in that we we know about the allegations and the guilty verdict, um, and you know, hearing hearing the stories and the striking similarity from the women, um, that he, that he abused, um, really raped, uh, it's the, the consistency of it is shocking. The, when you see, they, they kind of expertly show a timeline where you realize this is something that stretches back decades and continued up until, you know, at, as far as we know, at least the early aughts, um, and it's nauseating, but at the same time, I think 
um, Mr. Bell does a fantastic job contextualizing his importance as an artist and as a comic and an actor and um, in many ways, well, an educator and an activist. And um, it, it was really kind of, to me, um, you know, you've got the parallel of the abuse along with his importance as a figure in, in um, African-American history and American cultural history. And, and I thought it was, um, it, you know, fascinating to see his trajectory, his career trajectory paralleled with his history as an as a predator. Yeah, you know, I just want to say also, um, before I get to Mercy, yeah, there is this sort of weird valley between 2006, I think, is when uh, one of the most prominent cases was settled, to, uh, and then kind of eight years passed till 2014, where Hannibal Burris essentially wakes this whole story back up again. Uh, and, and I was thinking about that because somewhere in that valley, I guess maybe around 2012, Bill Cosby appeared on this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you think about it, uh, as Burris was trying to point out, you know, there was already it was already time to talk about Cosby in certain ways. So, Mercy, I, I just anything you want to say just to get us going. I want everybody to be able to say what they need to say uh, about this. Yeah. Um, and it's that's interesting phrasing. I don't need to say anything about this. <laughs> what I'm interested in for this film is that, you know, one of the things I think W. Kamal Bell does an amazing job um, illustrating how difficult it is to talk about Kazi, particularly in the Black community. I, uh, it's important for the viewer to know that if you're looking to achieve resolve by the end of the film, you're not by the end of the piece, the series, you're not going to get that from this, and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, you know, profess to be the the piece that's going to give you resolve. Um, it brings different aspects all together um, to the screen, different perspectives all together to the screen. And you can actually see the, um, in their discourse, um, you know, the disagreement between even some of the talking heads. Um, you know, we end off with perspectives from some of the talking heads that was like, yeah, no, I'm still a Cosby fan and I'll be a Cosby fan to the day I die, um, which is deeply troubling, but people process, um, you know, the re realities of, I think contemporary, uh, the contemporary makings of moral America um, differently. So for me, I think, you know, one thing that was particularly striking was that knowing the number of women that had accused him and, you know, the time uh, uh, cover and sort of reliving that history that I lived real time when Cosby was going through his his uh, trial in the whole nine. I remember thinking that the number was striking, uh, striking enough to be uh, to deem him a predator. But this film changed my perspective. It's not just striking; it's casual. It tells me how casual his interactions with these the number of women who have accused him actually tells me how casual this behavior was to him. And, you know, we topped out at something around 30 for the time cover and didn't even, I mean, there are droves of women, I'm sure, who still have yet to come forward. And that tells me that this is just, this was casual behavior for him over the course of decades. And it also tells me that, you know, Cosby didn't change, we did. I think the moral fortitude mm -hmm. of our country changed and we responded to, who he 
had already shown himself to be differently. And that's kind of what this piece showed me that I wasn't quite, um, I wasn't at that place prior to um, watching this piece. Okay, Bill, your turn. <laughs> well, I know it's uh, fun on the nose sometimes when we can disagree with each other. Unfortunately, I can't do that. Um, I'm in agreement with uh, all three of you that, first of all, I think this is a extremely successful documentary, just as a documentary of its type, based on interviews with judicious use of media clips and B-roll included. I think Bell shows a tremendous amount of talent in pulling that together and pulling it together for something that is very difficult and is still, you know, for a lot of people, controversial. He talked about, you know, that a lot of people that he approached to be in this, they just said no. I'm not going anywhere near this, which, you know, to me, it's, it's almost unimaginable that people are still taking that position, but you have to understand the power dynamics here. He's, he's, he starts by saying, I feel like I have to have this discussion. I have to have this discussion. And, and that's what it is. It's a discussion with all of these observers and the women who actually experienced it. And I just, I, I just found it, extremely powerful. Well, you know, one of the things that Bell does that's remarkable that, as far as I know, never been done before, is when he wants one of his interviewees to deal with Cosby's gifts and his content, he puts a tablet in their hands. It's uh, brilliant. It, it really is quite something. Uh, James Ponowazic, also a good friend of the show, mm -hmm. was the one who really kind of called a lot of attention to that. That It's really a brilliant thing to do, to sort of personalize, have you kind of cradle the baby <laughs> that you loved so much while you're talking about the monster that came out of the baby somehow. Uh, it is just, just brilliant. Well, let's hear a little bit more from the documentary. Uh, this is uh, a different clip. I'm looking for it right now. Okay. Yes, this is um, a young woman who was uh, a model. I believe, and then uh, was recruited to a small part uh, on the Cosby show and then suddenly found out she had a dressing room and he wanted to visit her in his dressing room. Then he winds up coming to her dressing room and doing this weird thing with her. Uh, and so uh, she and some other people reflect on all of that. I don't believe that's the first time that happened. I don't believe that the people on that set didn't know what was happening. And I will say that right here. And please, please do not edit this. A lot of people knew because you can't do what he did unless you have other people supporting what you're doing. That I would love to ask some people that I used to work with there, like, what in the world did you think was going on? You did wonder, you had to. Frank Scotty had all the answers. Frank is the one that took care of Bill. Frank enabled something terrible for a long time. So why do bystanders like Scotty not speak out? Because there's a power dynamic. People have jobs. They need to eat. They need to pay their bills. I mean, it's been 30 years since the Cosby show has been on TV, but Bill Cosby was like the number one most powerful man in the entertainment industry back then. Mercy, this is kind of your point, uh, that this is something we probably, if we need to talk about Cosby now, we probably needed to talk about him a lot earlier. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and this is sort of this uh, same episode, I believe, where they started talking about Spanish fly and the, and the open use of Spanish fly. And for um, the listeners here, right, the, the piece goes into a period of time, Colin, I don't know if you remember if this was the 70s that they were talking about this, right? But um, it, a, a drink that you could put into, I'm sorry, a pill that you could put into women's drinks and it would make them wildly aroused, right? And this, there were commercials and um, you know, Cosby is on uh, television uh, talking about this, and this is how you get women to be, uh, to, you know, to <laughs> bend to your will, really. Um, and it, it was, this is why the word casual comes back to me. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it cannot be surprising. And those who, those who had been in contact, particularly those who were in personal contact with Cosby over um, the decades of his career, but those who saw a number of his interviews or followed his career on television, if you took, if you take the mass of that content and today try to grapple with whether you think these accusations from women are true or not, for me, I, I don't think you have to because he's telling you that this is how I behaved. This is how I have always behaved and and these are how I had this is how I had a apparatus of supporters around me to ensure that this behavior could go on. Yeah, I mean, Jacques, that's a kind of interesting thing, too. And, and we do it with all kinds of uh, figures. And, you know, in, in your work with the Mark Twain house, uh, you know, you sort of face this not only with Twain, but with people you might even conceivably want to bring into the Twain house uh, who also have, let's say, baggage. And, and then you look at the old material and you think, oh, was it was it always there? And one of the things they do in this thing is they do these clips from The Cosby Show where he's talking about, I think it's his barbecue sauce that uh, is just has this quality of just making husbands and wives want to leave the barbecue right away and make the sexy time. And initially when they're showing this, I was going, no, come on. You're kind of stretching there a little bit, I think. You know, this is sort of a harmless kind of thing. This isn't. And then the more they did it, I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) This is really. I mean, and and that's eerie, I think, in the way that Mercy's talking about, too. Yeah. And, you know, I had the exact same response about the barbecue sauce thing. I'm like, "Eh, I think they're stretching right here. It was like the only moment in the entire proceeding where I was like, hmm. But then when they showed the extended clip and you saw like the kids potentially accidentally ingesting the barbecue sauce, you're like, oh, that's actually really gross. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, it, the, the bread, the trail of breadcrumbs, it was shocking um, because of course you, until you know about all the allegations, they just seem like him being funny. Um, And it's, it's a bit akin to, you know, when you, when you see Woody Allen films with, you know, extraordinarily young love interests, uh, and then you match it with what was going on in his real life, or you'd see Michael Jackson videos with lots of kids in them. And then you compare it to what you later find out, you know, in terms of the allegations and it, you know, it's that hiding in plain sight thing that becomes, um, you know, makes us all to a certain extent feel um, like we've had a role in enabling this. Yeah. And Bill, you know, I I think that's 
Uh, I mean, this is something we've talked about so much on the nose and on my show in a larger sense. Uh, and I think Bell breaks some kind of new ground with a kind of old, slightly stale question. And I'm, I would struggle to figure out exactly how to describe what that new ground is. I'm wondering if you have that same sense, though. I do. I do. And you're, you know, like you say, we, we do talk about this a lot. And, you know, it's, it's that phrase of, you know, can you separate the art from the person? But, um, you know, there's a, there's a limitation to that because obviously on the one hand, the answer is no, but then there's other layers that go with it. And I, I guess for me, what I think Bell does is he, he's able to, to do this, this dialectic of, you know, two things can be true at the same time. And I, I, I see him doing that in two ways. One is this way that Bill Cosby was a brilliant comedian. I, I think that's legitimate to say absolutely brilliant and a truly iconic figure in our culture and did tremendous things in the industry for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are, you know, all the buzzwords now, but he was doing it then. That's true. And yet all of the stuff under the surface and then above the surface, as Mercy says, that we just ignored was also true. Though both of those things are true at the same time. And then the other part of it is this thing that I think he deals with very well in the last episode. He says, I get where the backlash comes from. It's also very, very true that black men have been the victims of false accusations for centuries in America. That is true. And yet it's also true that unequivocally, Cosby did these horrible, horrible things. It's, it's, it's being able to bring all of those things together that I think he's so successful at and a very difficult thing to pull off. Yeah, he's, he's so smart about it. And the group of people, even though a lot of people, as has been noted, didn't want to go on this thing, um, a lot of people did. Uh, and, and people say remarkable things and really kind of dig down deep inside themselves. And, and also, I mean, I've said this on social media a couple of times, the person I was knocked out by in particular was Jamel Hill. I just think she's terrific. And, mm-hmm. and just, you know, I, I want to have her on this show now. Uh, and uh, But yeah, I, I to me, ultimately, we're I think we have a lot of thinking about to do about it afterwards too. What are you going to do with all this? You know, do you do you throw out everything that was meaningful to people? Because a lot of what he did was incredibly meaningful to to both white and black Americans of all Americans, mm-hmm. but very very specifically meaningful and 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 esteem building for black Americans. Do you you know Wesley Morris has written about this too? Do you, do you just trash it? You know, well, probably not. But you can't preserve parts of it without ignoring the pain uh, that people have suffered, and you wouldn't want to do anything that would kind of perpetuate that pain. All right. So, uh, you know, really, it's it, this is big and complex, and you really just you need to watch all four parts, parts of it on Showtime. Get a trial subscription if you don't have one already. Uh, and uh, we will be back to talk about Woody Allen.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Rifkin's Festival is the 49th feature film written and directed by Woody Allen. <laughs> you think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is big? Try the Woody Allen Cinematic Universe. It was released internationally in 2020, domestically in theaters, and for rental around here, uh, uh, January 28th. Uh, in fact, in February of 29, Amazon Studios dropped Allen from a five-picture deal. Uh, Rifkin's uh, Festival was shot after that uh, and in Sebastian, San Sebastian, Spain. Somehow or other, despite that, I was able to order it from Amazon uh, as just, you know, a, a paid feature. So um, it stars Wallace Shawn as Mort Rifkin, kind of a stand-in for Woody Allen, uh, but a, a much more thwarted one, a guy who's been teaching film and trying to write a la Mr. Dick and David Copperfield, this kind of a literary masterpiece that he never seems to write more than five pages of. Uh, he is in a marriage with Gina Gershon as Sue. She is a publicity uh, manager. Uh, runs their own firm, it appears. They are at a film festival in San Sebastian, Spain, where they are meeting a whole bunch of people, uh, including and probably most notably uh, a, a rather handsome a uh, French director named Louis Garal, who clearly has eyes for Gina Gershon's Sue. Uh, Sean, Sean's Rifkin, meanwhile, seeks solace with an equally beautiful uh, doctor uh, named Dr. Joanna Jo Rojas, played by Elena Enea. Uh, and complications ensue. Okay, uh, before we hear from the panel about this, uh, let's hear Gina Gershon and Wallace Shawn. You get kind of a sense of uh, Mort Rifkin, Rifkin's take on everything. I mean, you heard him talk about his next movie. He's going to try to reconcile the Arabs in Israel. Yes, I'm glad he's turning to science fiction. Philippe is so brilliant. What is politics? Politics is totally ephemeral. It misses the big questions. What big questions? The big questions. Like? Well, what's it all about? Is this everything that there is, or is there more? I mean, those are the questions that really matter. The things he deals with are actually trivial, although he thinks they're so profound. They're not. I mean, we could have an ideal world politically, and we'd still have these very same terrifying questions. Boy, my heart is starting to hurt me. And here we go. Yeah, I know. You think it's all in the head. You're not having a heart attack, Mort. You just ate too many tacos on the plane. Well, those tacos were like barbells. 
All right. So once again, Bill and I have been cavelling and kvetching and emailing and all this kind of stuff on the rest of the panel is a little bit more of a mystery about this. So Mercy, I'll have you get us going. Uh, how'd you like Rifkin's festival? Oh, it was insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> it was insufferable. <laughs> um, you said something earlier in email, you know, that you were you were grateful for the occasional joke. And oh, my God, if the, that occasional joke didn't um, occur, I don't know that I would have been able to make it through the film. And the film, I'll say, is a is a. <laughs> You know, for typical films, it's a modest, you know, a uh, uh, ninety-minute film, and it should be enjoyable. It should be an enjoyable ninety minutes. But, man, I am, uh, I am immediately jaded when I start the film because oh, this is a Woody Allen film. Let's see what I'm getting into, and I'm patronizing now. See, this is the line that for me I typically don't like to cross. The line of, all right, well, I can appreciate the art from an artist that, um, you know, was given to the world prior to we, prior to, you know, learning of that person's, um, you know, downcomings, uh, uh, shortcomings rather. Um, but I, I will seldom, I will not patronize an artist after knowing about that, right? You won't continue to get a dollar from me, R. Kelly. If you release something, I'm not interested in sharing it, it uh, or rather listening to it. If you um, are promoting something, executively producing something, I would like to know when R. Kelly is involved in any project so I can make sure to keep my dollars in my pocket. Now, have, uh, renting this uh, it took me such a long time to do it because I had to reconcile my feelings around uh, paying for the the um, the movie to watch it, and then in in so doing, I'm frequently reminded of the accusations against Alan, um, and you know Rifkin being the stand-in for Alan in this piece, it sort of feels as though we're living. Uh, a bit of his ongoing uh, fascination, or I'll say what has been what has been lifted up as a fascination with young people. <laughs> but the the wife is interested in in the obviously younger filmmaker, and uh, Rifkin himself is interested in the obviously substantially younger uh, doctor. And you know, we're just sitting here having to grapple with you know, the reality of that. And there are these moments she asks him to leave and he doesn't, he thinks he's helping. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm I, it was an insufferable film. <laughs> right. Do you, do you want to think about that or? Uh... <laughs> Jacques, you know, I'm still mulling it over. Yeah. And when I give when I have a more developed thought, yeah. I'll be sure to give it to you guys. Yeah. Jacques, how about you? Bruce's like, the more I think about it, the more I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did not hate it. I did not love it either. It's, um, you know, having watched literally all of his films um, and, you know, not that long ago, I made it kind of my pandemic project during the initial outlay of the mm. quarantine to watch or rewatch all of his films. And um, it's not in the absolute cellar of, of Woody Allen's work. Um, you know, I think films like anything else and Melinda and Melinda belong there. Um, but I would say it, A, I think Wallace Shawn is not a lead. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he, as in so many films that Woody Allen directs and writes that he doesn't star in, basically put someone in, in his place as mm -hmm. 
as a, you know, a mouthpiece basically. Uh, and some people have acquitted themselves well in this regard. Um, I don't think Wallace Shawn does per se. And, you know, the character is Woody Allen. Uh, and you can hear Woody Allen's voice behind them and how it would have been funnier, still gross in terms of the age difference. I mean, in what universe does Gina Gershon marry Wallace Shawn? It's like not a universe in which, you know, normal human beings exist. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think at the same time, you, you know, Woody Allen's comic voice is so strong still, um, even though the, the movie is not as funny as, uh, as many of his, his works. But, uh, and not all of his works are, are comedies, but this one clearly is intended to be. Um, I, my biggest thing from the film, it, well, I guess sort of three things. One is, you know, it, it, it you know, uh, focuses on all his, his usual obsessions, his neuroses around his health, uh, his attraction to, to women, his love of film, particularly, he really indulges his love of film in this. Um, uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, and of course, a star-studded cast. He always—it's always fun to see where people pop up in the story. You kind of forget after the opening credits that, whoa, that's Steve Gutenberg's in a Woody Allen film. And uh, but I think um, it's also, I think, a bit typical of his later work, where it beautifully showcases European settings, mm-hmm. um, which he, you know, as as he's found it harder to get funding in the U S he's gone abroad more and more. And the, you know, same kind of beautiful attention he to detail he gave in uh, to Manhattan uh, in much of his career he's doing in Europe now. Right. It should be noted that um, first of all, I mean, Woody Allen for years kind of had this incredible knack. It turned out not to be his knack, but this incredible knack for casting, you know, Patricia Clarkson or Timothy Chalamet, you know, just as they were just hitting, just the the moment everybody wanted to see them in another movie uh, where they transformed from an unknown to a really intriguing prospect. Um, and this turned out, I think Woody Allen has said that he never knows who any of these people are. He has this incredible casting person who gets them. But it's clear now, I mean, a lot of Timothy Chalamet, Gina Gershon type people have just said they will never be in another Woody Allen movie again that they didn't understand all this stuff. Uh, and and they, so you see, I think, kind of a different uh, Woody Allen cast in, in this movie. You see, you know, what the frenzy's got left here, I guess. But, but Bill, you know, I want to just build on something that Jacques was saying, that, you know, so much of this is a little bit of a class that Woody Allen is teaching, just as his character more does teach film, uh, in, in, in a way that connects back to Stardust Memories. We see that he still hasn't escaped the spell cast on, on Woody Allen by the films of European directors. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in ways that in Love and Death, you know, you'd see a kind of really funny persona knockoff between Keaton and, and, and Alan. Now they're these kinds of recreations uh, of Bergman or Fellini. They're kind of being done in a different way, kind of much more dreamlike, I guess. Yeah. And that's exactly how it's set up in in the film. You know, of course, it's got the classic. He's he's talking to his psychoanalyst. So he's talking about all of his dreams, but all of his dreams, as you say, are these, you know, classic European art films. Um, Well, Citizen Kane, you know, but uh, Jules and Jim, Breathless, uh, The Seventh Seal. There were even some I didn't 
I couldn't place without looking up. Um, and he, you know, Woody Allen is in love with film himself, right? And, you know, I, I think, so this, you know, the fun part of, of, of the nose, as I said earlier, is when we can disagree. And I, I enjoyed this film. You know, I but I think you have to recognize Woody Allen is 84 years old. And at this point, he's just he's just getting up and going to work. You know, it's it's just it's just what he does. There, there's this old interview with with Bruce Springsteen where he talks about, you know, that, you know, every day he just kind of gets up and goes to work because that's what his parents did. And, you know, they were doing something else, but he's doing his art. I, I think that's the case with Woody Allen. And I his days as a significant filmmaker, I think everybody agrees are long, long in the past, not just because of the allegations against him, but also, you know, just because, you know, that's what happens. The fact that we can even talk about minor Woody Allen films, if you can talk about someone's minor work, that to me is an indication that they are a real significant artist. And, you know, we can't expect him to continue to you know to turn out you know some of the great films that he made in the past so for so for me i just kind of go into them expecting okay this is you know woody allen's yearly film and it's either going to be a little bit funny or not funny this one i did find kind of funny i find it kind of enjoyable it's you know it's a nice you know 90 minute diversion Actually, just to, but, but for a point of uh, the Bureau of Records, Woody Allen's going to turn 87 this year. He's probably about 84. Oh, is he? Probably, I he's, underestimate. He's probably, 80, mm-hmm. probably 84 when he's making this movie. Um, so everything I just said, but even more so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's going to come a day, and maybe it's here now, that he's Woody Allen's going to say, hey, I can't. I can't do another one. I, it's just, um, I, I, I'm Bill and I. I think are in similar places here. I mean, uh, to me, what this because movie, we're the old guys on the panel. We're the old why. guys on the so panel. We're like, you know, give us a break. Um, but I think also kind of, I don't know, is reminded of the way that movies, particularly when movies were so different from what television had to offer. Television you would kind of offer us kind of a sliced and diced rehash of our own realities. Movies tended to let us dream, you know, and you would go into these dark spaces and there would be a glow on the screen, you know, and then something could happen so beautiful and magical uh, that it would make you dream, that it would make you see uh, a transformed reality. Uh, and, and I think he kind of gets at that a little bit. Um, although Jacques, as a Woody Allen completist, you know, to me, it's always a struggle. To, the question that I'm always asking myself is what kind of detachment or space does he have between himself and the primary character? It's a problem in Manhattan, right? If he thinks Isaac is basically doing what any guy would do, that's a real problem. If he thinks that Isaac is a manipulative narcissist, then he's made a really interesting movie about, about a manipulative narcissist <laughs> trying to sort of eke out happiness and, and maybe learn something once in a while. Um, but he, he never tells us, does he? No, I mean, you know, that's, I think that's part of the Woody Allen persona is that, you know, it, it's incredibly consistent. You know, he's kind of got his own version of, of Charlie Chaplin's, you know, little tramp or, you know, in, in terms of, you know, uh, and as you call it, the Woody Allen universe that he, you know, there may be some variations on the character, but it's all essentially the same character. So it, 
And I think it very much comes from his own obsessions. And so I feel like, uh, um, you know, like that, that character in Stardust Memories or in, you know, in Manhattan, you know, and we then compare it to what we know from watching the Pharaoh uh, versus Allen documentary. And he was in a relationship with a 16 year old girl when he was an adult. And then, but we didn't know that at the time when we're watching Manhattan, when we should have been very concerned about him being in a relationship with a 17 year old. And so what we assume was fictitious wasn't necessarily fictitious and um, should be equally disturbing, but we look at Manhattan as a masterpiece. Right. And Mercy, you know, I kind of made this point in the emails, but there's a uh, just going back to we need to talk about Cosby. There's a point in that fourth episode where you see on set Colbert and and, uh, Seinfeld are talking about Cosby and they're talking about those albums and how incredibly magical they were. And then Colbert says, but I just can't listen to him the same way anymore. And Seinfeld goes, you can't, huh? You can't. Huh? And he kind of even makes a little face and folds his arms. And then I'm thinking, well, speaking of 17-year-old girls, when Jerry Seinfeld was the most popular TV star in America, he, he was 38 years old and dating a 17-year-old girl um, for four years. Yeah. So it's and like, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I think it, I mean, really, it speaks to what rape culture is. And I've said this a number of times on, on this show and, and other places in the world that, right, rape culture is the culture in which we support behaviors that lead to rape, right? And so you have universities saying, oh, we don't have a rape culture. We don't have a rape culture. I'm not saying that, like, I'm not saying that you all as an institution are influencing rape, but what are our behaviors that will lead to it, right? And I think that men and women and, uh, you know, everyone who identifies as something in between are all at risk when we don't when we aren't having these conversations about, okay, well, what does our rape culture like? Now, it could, it could be very, um, it could be the case that you are creating an institution where you your rape culture is to examine every single uh, accusation, is to thoroughly examine the context in which the accusation is made, is to provide support for every person involved. But I do think that when um, accusations are brought forth, we don't have an apparatus to examine them in a way that is nuanced, right? And so if an accusation is made and, you know, the person who is, you know, being uh, framed, who is facing the accusation, um, you know, is male, but maybe ha- was was inebriated or anything. We don't actually create a space to say our rape culture put you in a space to think that was okay too, right? That your behavior in this space was okay. That is what our rape culture is. And we're not, we're not really engaging in that in any uh, particular way, because I think Jerry Seinfeld thinks it, it was okay at the time and is having a hard time grappling it with our context today. All I right. Think, we, I'm, uh, so, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. We really have to kind of wrap up here. We're not going to have any time left on the other side. Right. But it's a great point you're <laughs> making right now. And I think you made it really beautifully too. All right. We're going to take a, take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do some recommendations. When skies are cloudy and gray They're only gray for a day. 
All right, special thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical producer. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the producer of The Nose. He was away last week. It was fine, but it didn't feel exactly like a Jonathan McPants nose. Uh, so it's great to have him back. Uh, and so now it's time to make some recommendations. Uh, Mercy, uh, since I was so rude as to cut you off before, why don't you get us started this time? <laughs> Thank you. You are gracious. I um, So... To keep, you know, I've been doing this on brand for several years now. Yes, you have. <laughs> so here we go. Season two of Space Force is out, and I've been waiting <laughs> for it since season one. And I haven't checked it out yet in its entirety, but episode one is fantastic. And it brings the same sort of folly and lighthearted humor from Steve Carell that we uh, come to expect from season one. Um, the second piece would be a... Um, uh, another Netflix series is called Another Life, and this is your typical first contact series, um, where in uh, the sort of special thing here is that astronauts are um, pursuing the source of an alien artifact that landed here on Earth, and I believe they're in pursuit of Io, thinking that the artifact came from Io, and these are two beautifully executed, well, well, I'll say Another Life is beautifully executed, but uh, Space Force is just a great time. Those are my two. <laughs> I am... I am really excited that I can keep this up for years on end. <laughs> yeah, I'll be very disappointed in you if you ever do not. Um, all right, Jacques Lamar, what do you what do you have for us? I have two things. One is uh, a new book by Edgar Gomez called "High Risk Homosexual: A Memoir," and um, he's a, a young man who is of Nicaraguan descent, but uh, born in the U.S. And it's kind of about. Um, finding his his place in America um, uh, as a gay man and as a Latinx uh, man, and it's it's really quite lovely and um, highly recommended. So again, high risk homosexual. Um, and the other thing is uh, just encouraging people to get out there and support theater um, locally. And uh, if you can get to New York um, with the Omicron uh, variant, it. it Theaters started to empty out after they were just starting to fill up again. And there's so much great work coming and so many great theater makers out there doing good work. So I encourage you, slap a mask on, bring your Vax card and go to the theater. Yeah, I, I just can't wait to get back to the theater. I'm, because of special circumstances, I'll be one of the last people who gets back there. But I'm I'm hungry. Uh, all right. Uh, and uh, Bill Usman, how about you? Um, two shortish things. On Monday night, Trevor Noah devoted his entire episode to an extended in interview with the musician India Ari. And they talked, speaking of problematic men, men, they talked about Joe Rogan. They talked about Spotify and its treatment of musicians. They talked about white people and the N-word. It's a really interesting interview of two thoughtful people really trying to work through some very difficult questions. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's now up on YouTube or on The Daily Show's website. Uh, and then the other thing is just Google um, Ethan Cohen's review of Joel, Co Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. It's hilarious. It's just on a substack uh, called I Might Be Wrong, and it's Ethan Cohen reviewing his brother's film. 
do yourself a treat and read it. You know, I can't wait for both of those. Uh, and uh, the, the Trevor Noah thing I didn't know about, uh, I'm teaching this semester. It sounds like something I'll probably be folding into the class that I teach. You probably will be doing that too, Bill. Uh, I will indeed. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> this is really weird what I'm about to do, but I think it, it's sort of true. Um, just by accident, I wound up watching something that is essentially like the, the photographic negative image of We Need to Talk About Cosby. Uh, and it is a documentary called <laughs> Mr. Warmth, The Don Rickles Project. And so you, <laughs> you kind of have this inversion, right? You have, you have, they show the real Rickles nightclub act, too, right at the beginning. Uh, and, I mean, he is canceled 20 times in, in 15 minutes, except that he's not. I mean, he says so much stuff that people get canceled for all the time, and, and he is Teflon. Uh, and, and then, similar to Bell, you have all these really interesting people being interviewed. Uh, now it's Chris Rock and Sidney Poitier, uh, the late Sidney Poitier, talking about you know their relationship with Rickles, with his material, why he can do this stuff. He can't do it, but he can. Why, why, why? <laughs> uh, Poitier, I guess, was pretty close to, to Rickles. So... Um, it is you have a guy who is horrible and mean and terrible and says awful things from the stage and who by all accounts was the you know the sweetest man uh, in the world backstage and whenever he wasn't doing this thing and that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around too it is the reverse of Cosby you know who so often seemed so warm and and perfect uh, in so many different ways, uh, but uh, and then obviously had this uh, other side so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> all I know is, as usual, feeling the tiniest built, built guilty watching the, some of the footage there. I was screaming, laughing my head off. It's stuff I should never be laughing at, but that's Rickles. All right. So thanks very much to uh, this wonderful panel. Jacques Lamar, playwright, director of client services at Buzz Engine. Mercy Quay, a founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project. We her column at the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. And I am saying goodbye. Very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy. Like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury. Hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.